0: Sensei Michelle here. Today, being the fifth Monday in March, means we're running an archived episode. Hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening.
1: This is Wildcat Dojo Conversations.
0: Hi, and welcome back. We're finally going to finish our trilogy on swords by talking about Goro Masamune and his most famous blade, the Hanjo Masamune. It has been missing since the end of World War II. So now, like the Titanic, they know the end of the story. They won't listen to the rest. (laughs) Today, I'm with Landon and Jackie, of course. Say hi, everybody. Hi, everybody.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome back.
0: And our guest is Sensei Jay. He is the person who introduces the podcast. He's quite the history buff, and he loves old weapons. So this should be fun. Hi, Sensei.
1: Hello, everyone, and I hope you all are well.
0: Oh, yeah, me too. Yes. Okay. I'm going to start by adding an addendum to the podcast we did on the Katana. So I was looking through videos setting up for this episode, and I came across an episode with a man named Walter Sorrell. It's a YouTube video. I totally recommend it. I think you checked it out. I did. It was very cool. Anyway, while I was reading, watching, and enjoying the research, I came across this fact. Do you guys remember that we said that sword makers have to apprentice for five years? I remember that. us. And we discussed the relationship between the sword makers and the sword polishers. Us. We did. Well, according to that site, sword polishers apprenticed for 10 years. Now, that's a
2: long time. (laughs) Right? Very long time.
0: Okay. Getting back to today's episode. I used a lot of my usual sites, but one that was new was called sword-masamuni.com. So I'm guessing the site was dedicated just to him, right? I guess (laughs) guess so. (laughs) Anybody want to add any sites here before we push? I don't.
2: I used a site, and huh. that website was markusesco.com.
3: I think it's a person's name. I agree. Oh, that's interesting.
0: The star of today's episode is a specific sword called the Hanjo Masamune. And the sword maker is, of course, Masamune. So here goes. Start me out, Sensei Jackie. First, we should introduce him.
3: His name was Goro Masamune. And his birth and death dates are not exactly known, but people believe that he was making most of his swords in the late 13th century and part
2: of the early 14th century. That's true. And our friend Goro, as we like to call him, was actually the son of a man named Yoku Mitsu, who was a swordsmith from a village not too far away from Kyoto.
1: I have an interesting fact. There's an award for swordsmiths called the Masamuni, The prize is awarded to the Japanese sword making competition. And that's because he's considered Japan's greatest swordsmith. This is not a competition that happens yearly or at any scheduled time. It's when a certain amount of swords are submitted and are worthy of the competition.
2: That's cool. That's super cool, Sensei Jay. Can I add one more? Please do. Do you guys remember that we mentioned in the Katana podcast how he was on the cutting edge. That's a good one.
0: (laughs) That is a good one.
2: (laughs) Back on track. He was on the cutting edge of the use of the four bars of the Talahagani steel and also the two different carbon contents for the sharp and tough edge needed. Well, I also found where he named the style of sword making, and its name is the Soshu Style.
0: Okay, that was awesome. Thank you all for getting all that cool information. Of course, we got to jump to a legend.
2: Of course. Because we love
0: our legends. Everybody who's read this in any detail knows that it couldn't be true. But it's still written about a lot. And I think that's probably because the legend's moralistic in its nature. Yes. Mm. After you hear the story, you decide. It's the story of Masamuni and Mira Masa. That's a handful of M's.
2: That's pretty good.
0: So it's about an alleged competition between the two swordsmiths. Okay, Sensei Jackie, start us out on this legend.
3: All right, this legend is about which sword maker made a sharper blade. Here we go. (laughs) The whole thing could not have been possible because Muramasa was born 100 years
0: after Masamune.
2: I'm having deja vu.
0: Kind of like when we had that legend about Musashi being somebody's student, right? That's That's what I'm saying. I have deja vu. I remember
2: reading that line.
0: Okay, Landon, take us along.
2: All right, Sensei. There are actually a lot of versions of this legend. In one version, both swords were suspended over a stream to test their quality. Muramasa's sword sliced everything that came into contact with it. By contrast, Masamune's sword only cut the leaves that were floating. Living things repelled it. When Muramasa observed the phenomena, Muramasa began to gloat. Huh. A monk, observing the competition, said Muramasa's blade was evil and and bloodthirsty, because it indiscriminately killed everything. But the Masamuni sword killed only what was necessary. Uh But don't you think, Sensei
0: Jay, even though the story is kind of idealistic, it really speaks to what their big point is, which is like the idealism of a good character?
1: Exactly. And um, people said Muramasa was off his rocker. <laughs> we know a few people like that?
0: <laughs> yes, we do.
1: Because he was very violent and there's one more legend. It is said that his blades hold or held his madness.
3: Oh. <laughs> Who would want to
0: buy a blade like that? Before we go on, I'm just going to say, you know that whole off the rocker thing? Yes. Are any of them sitting here at this table? <laughs> All of us.
2: <laughs> All of us.
0: Well, there it is. You know, I really do enjoy the legends. They're fun. I wonder if our listeners do. Obviously, we're going to need them to get in touch and let us know. We're all over the web at Wildcat Dojo. Did you guys know we started a Twitter page? Hey, tweet us, please. Tweet, tweet. You and your tweet tweets. I love it. <laughs> and, of course, if you're old school, we're at Dojo Conversations at AOL. Let's get back to Masamune though. I'm going to start the Masamune facts with a little bit of a boring one. It is believed that he worked in the Sagami province.
2: And I don't think that this one classifies as boring, but you'll let me know. The name of the sword, Hanjo Masamuni, is a mix of the name of General Hanjo Shiginaga and the maker, Masamuni. The General Shiginaga lived during the 16th and 17th century and he served Northern Japan. Well, the history says that the general took it after the battle
3: of Kawana Kajima in 1561. I just got to stop
0: and say, I'm so glad you got that line
3: instead just, of me. I was
2: just going to say, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking that at that she word going, take all what? The big words. what?
0: Okay, after that battle.
3: Supposedly during the battle, his enemy named Umonosuke cut Shigenaga's helmet with the blade, but Shigenaga was victorious and he took that blade after the battle as a prize.
1: That's a perfect example of what killing machines swords were at the time. (laughs) But in the end, the general sold it to the clan that was ruling Japan at the end of the 1600s.
0: Yeah, I read he needed the money. Really? And at that time, it was the Toyotomi clan. When the Toyotomi clan fell to the Tokugawa, they took the sword. The Tokugawa clan took the sword? At that time. And it stayed with them for the rest of the time they knew where it was. Dun-da-da-da.
3: Okay, so at that point, it became a symbol of the Tokugawa dynasty, and it was passed down from one shogun to the next as quite a prize. Even when the Tokugawa dynasty fell during the 1868 Meiji Restoration,
0: the sword stayed in the Tokugawa family.
2: That's pretty cool.
0: Right. So that's the history of the blade. I mean, that's hundreds of years. Can you imagine all, if that blade could talk all the history? Oh, my goodness. And, and its meaning to the people who owned it from the historical value? I mean, incredible. compare that to something that you passed down in your family to children Us. and children, right? China, Us. right? Silverware is something that's passed down. Like photo albums? Jay passes down his guns to his sons. Yes. That's exactly the same to me. exactly
1: Yes. And how to
0: use them. And and safety, but let's not get off on that track. (laughs) Okay. Now let's talk about what happened to the blade. I do want to run this caveat in real quick. Everybody should know that this happened at the end of World War II. And it's going to be a little bit difficult to keep war and politics separate from the, I want a word here that means the specifics or the, emotion, or what do I want to say there? The purity of the story of the blade. I like that. Yes. yes. Okay, having mentioned that, here is what happened. At the end of World War II, the Allies demanded that all blades in Japan be turned in, and that included all the blades from the noble families. The Japanese nobility was incensed by that. Mm. And
3: this is what is recorded. At that time, the Hanjo Masamune was owned by Tokugawa Iemasa, That was Iemasa of the Tokugawa clan.
0: Exactly.
3: Iemasa thought he would act as a good example for his people since he was president of the House of Peers. So he turned in all 14 of his swords, including the Hanjo in December of 1945. He turned them in at a police station in Meijiro. The soldier who signed for the sword was a sergeant by the name of Koldy B. Moore. Or is it Cole? D.B. Moore. There are no records of anyone by this name being in the armed services at all.
0: That's some really wild story right there, isn't it, Sensei Jay?
1: It is. This is some serious stuff. There was a lot of chaos happening during the taking of the blades. You can imagine, you know, the times as they were. American service people didn't know the heritage or the value of the swords or what they meant to the Japanese culture. They started melting a lot of them down. Finally, a Japanese liaison explained the significance of the blades. At that point, the general in charge stopped the melting process.
0: I mean, there's a lot of emotion that's involved in in that, what we just read. Instead of thinking of it as happening to someone else, if you picture it happening to yourself, and this man was trying to do the honorable thing... He had no idea the chaos that he was serving that treasure into. Yes. Like he couldn't have seen that.
1: The Japanese, they lost the war. So we know what honor meant to them. They lost their honor. And now they're losing their culture on top of that. So it, it, it had to be chaotic.
0: Exactly. Well, I'm saying the chaos on our part. You know, say you go to a place and you leave your computer there mm-hmm. to get fixed, Right. And so you trust that they're going to tag it properly and have it back to you in three days, correct? Correct. But in this instance, that's what it looked like from the Japanese side. But what was actually happening with the Americans and the soldiers and the generals and what was happening on the ground over there was pure chaos. Nobody knew how to handle something of that nature at all. And that's a sad story. Right. And there was no sensitivity. Towards what was happening on the
3: other side, because it was war. It was war. It was but war.
1: I don't can't wrap my head around the reason that the Americans wanted to take their swords. Oh, I think it was psychological. It, but, it must have been because yeah, it certainly no, yeah. wasn't a threat at that point. It's, it's a yeah.
0: symbol. Yeah.
1: Well, it probably goes along with American warfare tradition. When a general or leader surrendered, he surrendered his sword. Okay. So maybe that's. And what even we in
0: Japanese talking. culture, which we all know from karate, when a new shogun would come in, they would take the weapons away from the populace. That's hence right. the whole kabuto weaponry right. coming from farm tools. So you have a the victors tell the story situation here. That's correct. Oops. All right. Where are we picking this up, Landon?
2: Listen, say, can I pick it up with something from historycollection.com? You got it. All right. At that point, according to historycollection.com, It was decided that the servicemen would be allowed to take their swords home. I'm stopping there just to give a simple, huh, okay. Going back now, the site went on to say that the sword collectors at that time met the servicemen on the docks and bought up a lot of them for almost nothing. To be fair, most of the swords were factory-made and not super valuable, but there were family heirlooms in the mix.
0: So that brings us right back to Coldy (laughs) more. Nothing at all is known about this blade after it's signed for by Coldy. And of course, there's a zillion theories out there, right? Of course. We got to name a few of the theories. Yes. So let's do it like we always do. Start me out, Landon.
2: Do we think that it got melted down? I don't know. Is it in an attic somewhere in
1: America? (laughs) Does the collector have it? know its value, and not want to give it back.
0: And there are even some who believe that it is hidden away in Japan and that although it was said that they turned it in, they never actually did. Mm. Everybody has searched for this. Well, not everybody on the whole planet, but... A lot of people have searched for this sword. You know what I bet? I bet a collector has it and he knows what it is. That's the one that sticks in my mind Is the most possible. What do okay. you guys think?
2: I think it's just got lost.
0: Somebody's attic and they don't know it's even there so yet.
2: It's That's what you think, Sensei J? That's what I think. That's, that's what I, think. I wonder if it's it. in the police station just sitting there. Oh. And I think that the
3: Tokugawa family knew mm. and gave a replica.
2: Oh,
0: oh really? See? That Those are all good theories. Somewhere it's out there.
2: We're Don't make me sing the song
0: now. from old cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like we're
2: investigators now.
0: Dateline. <laughs> well, you know, the, I heard about this on Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. That's what got me to thinking about the whole sword thing. And like we say on all of our podcasts, we touch the surface for you guys. But if you really want to know about it, you're going to have to do some digging. And right? there's plenty of information out there. Ooh, everybody likes talking about this blade. It's so cool. And we looked at the Hamon pattern
1: online. You
0: can see the the fingerprint of the sword. Let me put it this way. If they find it, they'll know they found it.
2: Oh, for sure.
0: Because there's evidence out there of what it looks like and which one it is. But anyway, finally, the edict mandating the taking of the weapons in Japan was reversed. I could not find that date, guys. I looked about seven different places. Did anybody find the actual date on that? I couldn't find it.
2: I don't think I saw a date, but when that happened, some blades were returned to the families who originally owned them, but still no Hanjo. So there you have it.
0: Remember in the last podcast where we said that the katana was created to kill, but also it's a heritage weapon and it's even a work of art.
2: Yes, I remember that.
0: Yes. That means for those people who love And revere the katana. This is a little bit sad story. Just the fact that we love katanas. Sensei Jay and I were talking about this as we drove out, and about you know if you had the kind of money to have your own custom built from one of the Mm. modern day sword makers, how cool that would be.
1: That would be (sighs) incredible. What an heirloom to pass down.
3: What an heirloom. Exactly.
0: Okay, so let's get
3: out of the sad. Okay, I'll start out. There are other famous swords by Basamune. There's a couple. The Kotegiri Masamune, the Ocho or Hocho Masamune, which was probably a tanto, a, a more like a knife than a sword. And Fudo Masamune, which belonged to Tokugawa Ieyasu, and it's a dagger. And then there's one called a twain, named for the location at the twain library. Just for the record, we can't verify the existence of the twain blade But if you know about it, will you let us know, please?
0: Yeah, I looked for that blade in all kinds of research in the Twain Library, and I couldn't get it to come up anywhere.
2: But Landon, do you want to take this? So since I found a Masamuni named the Musashi Masamuni, it's a Tachi, 74 centimeters long.
0: So it's a big one.
2: Big. They don't know if the Musashi Masamuni is named after the Musashi province or because it was once owned by Musashi himself. It is, of course, a national treasure. And you looked that one up. I did. And pictures? They're cool. That's uh, that website that I used, that uh, Marcus Sesco.
0: Okay. I think you have a fact about a Masamune blade, don't you, Sensei Jay?
1: Yes. President Harry Truman was given one of the Masamune blades after the end of World War II.
2: Hmm, I wonder what that where that is right now. It's
1: housed
0: at the Harry S. Truman Library and Museum. And that you can look up.
1: That's Harry, cool. Harry's got it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's hidden away, right? Ooh. Okay, so going back to the Hanjo, where
1: are we picking it up? I found this interesting because of the year in 1939, the Hanjo Masamune was made a Japanese national treasure.
3: Hmm. Where that is so interesting to me is how they let the Tokugawa family keep it, right. and they didn't put it into some sort of a national museum. Oh. Once something becomes a national treasure, you think that they'd take care of that thing and not just hand it to Coldy B. more.
2: <laughs> We're really, like, scolding him. Poor Coldy, right? It's <laughs> not
0: his fault that he signed that day. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to move us on to more modern times from a site called japantoday.com. You go first for me, Landon.
2: Okay, Sensei. In museums in Japan, blades are displayed with no adornment of the hilt, so you can see the maker. Masamuni really signed his, of course. The haman or the fingerprint, although different in every blade, has the characteristics from maker to maker, and that is one way they used to identify his unsigned work. And
0: like we said, that fingerprint of the Hanjo Masamuni mm-hmm. blade, you can look it up online, it's way cool. It's so cool. Okay, Sensei Jay, pick it up there.
1: In 2014, a Masamuni was found, not the Hanjo. The one that was found was called the Shimazu Masamuni. Its last owner was also in the Tokugawa Shogunate. And here is a really crazy fact. Before it showed up anonymously for inspection, its whereabouts are unknown.
2: Mm.
0: So that gives everybody hope, right? That somebody someday would do the right thing and turn in the Hanjo anonymously. see. Yes, OK, as usual, towards the end of episodes, we like to end with fun facts and quotes, right? Yes. That's OK, so you've got my first fun fact, I believe, Sensei uh, Jackie. I do.
3: In uh, the video game Final Fantasy and another game, which is actually three games, the Chrono Trilogy, which was an anime in the late 90s and a very well regarded, both contained a powerful weapon called a Masamune. Of course, the games are fictional. And the blade's not very real, but the name certainly is.
0: <laughs> That's a great one. All right. I found this when I was searching for backup information on the Masamuni blade at the Mark Twain Library. And the saying that is penned on one of the walls of his library is, ah, get it, penned. I didn't even do that on purpose. Funny. <laughs> that the pen is mightier than the sword. Mm. So I sort of thought he said that, but as it turns out, It originally dates back to the mid-1800s in England.
2: Oh, really? He didn't say that?
0: No. Well, he probably did say it because a lot of people have said it, which is what I'm about to get to. In, uh, I'm going to say the early 90s, I saw a letter that Peter Urban wrote to Master Collegian where he actually said those words, the pen is mightier than the sword. Hmm. So if you were around in those days and you got that letter and you would like to tell me about it, or talk about that or any other urban facts online, boy, Mm. what a coup for us, right? That would make us happy. I know. That would be so awesome if you did that. We would love to hear from you. Does anybody want to talk about The Pen is Mightier Than the Sword without getting too sad? Because now we're on happy notes. (laughs) No, but there is a correlation between that and the book we talked about, The
3: Sword and the Brush. All of these things have to do with right thinking in the right
0: time. Yeah, I noticed that in my mind too.
1: Yes.
0: Okay, guys, this was fun and relatively painless.
2: Very okay. unpainful.
0: <laughs> Let's do our end um, uh, of the show stuff. We told him how to get in touch except for the phone number. So that is 954-350-1915. Leave us a voice. Leave us a text. And, of course, we're going to mention Honor Athletics, our sponsor. You know, just check them out, guys, and mention Wildcat Dojo when you go for your 10% discount. We appreciate that.
2: They have a telephone number as well, which is? 770-945-5150.
0: Thank you, Landon, for knowing that by heart. <laughs> sensei. Sensei J, thanks. Thanks for being here.
1: My pleasure, Sensei.
0: You'll come back for archery.
1: I will come back Ooh, for archery. Ooh, that's a
0: little teaser. I'm looking forward to that one. All right, time to say goodnight, guys. Bye, everybody. Bye, see you soon. I'm signing out for now.
1: Thanks for being here. Hope you join us again on Wildcat Dojo Conversations.